So we saw in the last lecture that the structure of the alcohol halide is very important for determining which mechanism occurs. Um, what we want to do in this lecture is to look at some other factors which influence SN1 or SN2 mechanisms. And the first thing I want to look at is the leaving group ability of the halide. The halide comes off and we, we call it a leaving group. It leaves the organic substrate, the organic molecule. Now the leaving group ability depend depends on two factors. First it depends on the carbon-halogen bond strength. Obviously the stronger that bond is, the less likely that halide is to come off. It also depends on what we might call the stability, if you like, of X minus. X minus the halide anion is formed in the reaction, and if that likes to be formed, it's a nice stable species, then it's more likely to be formed during the reaction. Let's look at the bond energy part of this first of all. If we look at the bond energies of carbon fluorine, and I'm introducing fluorine directly at this stage, carbon fluorine, carbon chlorine, carbon bromine, and carbon iodine, we find they go from 46 sorry, not 46, 460 kilojoules per mole for the CF bond to 350 for the uh, carbon chlorine bond to 300 for the carbon bromine bond to 238 for the carbon iodine bond. Obviously then the bond which is going to be easiest to cleave is the iodide and the one which is going to be more difficult to cleave is the fluoride. So that's the bond strength part of the equation. And let's consider the stability, if you like, of the halide anion. How do we determine that? We're sort of related to the acidity of the hydrogen halide. The more acidic HX is, then the more easy it gives off H plus to something that wants it. In other words, this is sort of related to the stability of X minus. After all, each of these hydrogen halides gives up H plus. So what must determine this ease of giving up H plus is really the ease of formation of X minus. And what we find is that hydrogen iodide is a much stronger acid than hydrogen bromide, which in turn is a much stronger acid than hydrogen fluoride, which in turn is a very much stronger acid than hydrogen fluoride. But hydrogen fluoride is a considerably weak acid, a bit like the, as we, almost as weak as acid as a carboxylic acid, an organic carboxylic acid. And therefore we see on both counts, on bond strength and on the ease of formation of the anion, the iodide, alcohol iodides, are going to be the best halides for substitution. The bromides the next best, the chlorides the next best, and the fluorides by far the worst. And this is why fluorides are inert, incidentally. The CF bond is too strong to break, and the fluoride anion, once formed, is not very nice, not very stable anion, as it were. And this applies across both mechanisms. SN1 and SN2, this leaving group ability. So that's the first thing which influences the mechanisms. The second thing is nucleophilicity. Now nucleophilicity obviously relates only to the SN2 mechanism because it's only in the SN2 mechanism that the nucleophile gets involved in the rate of reaction, in the rate determinant step. But what is nucleophilicity? In simple terms, it's just the how good a nucleophile is. A nucleophile with, which is a good nucleophile is said to be have a better nucleophilicity than one which is a poor nucleophile, and that is a poor, has poor nucleophilicity. 
How do we determine that? Well, it's related really to where the electrons are in the nucleophile. Let's suppose we have a big element. And the electrons which are going to be used to form the new bond to carbon, this element is in the nucleophile, those electrons are far removed from the nucleus of that element. Compare that with a small element where the electrons are close to the nucleus. We say that in the first one, the big element, the electrons are much more easily used. They are said to be more polarizable than in the second one where the electrons are held more tightly, more closely to the nucleus, they are less available for use to form bonds as a nucleophile. That is, less polarizable. The whole thing is called polarizability. And so as we move down the periodic table, we should see the nucleophilicity increasing. For example, the iodide anion is a better nucleophile than the bromide, which is better than chloride, which is better than fluoride. Similarly, alcohol thiolates, RS minus, are better than alkoxides, RO minus. And dialcohol sulfides are very much better than dialcohol ethers, R2S versus R2O. And similarly, trialcohol phosphines are very good nucleophiles, better than trialcarnamines. So that's nucleophilicity. Now let's look at the next factor involved in SM1 and SM2, and this is involved in only SM1, and this is the rearrangement of carbocations, since carbocations are only formed in the SM1 mechanism. Let's take our neopentyl halide that we had. We've seen neopentyl before. This is a primary alcohol halide with a tertiary butyl group on that carbon there in the iodine. And if we treat it with silver nitrate in water, what the silver does is it abstracts the iodide, it acts as an electrophile really, it takes off the iodide and generates a carbocation, a primary carbocation on the neopentyl compound. Now we've seen already that primary carbocations are not as stable as secondary or tertiary. And if there's any way that this primary carbocation could rearrange to give us a secondary or a tertiary carbocation, then it will do so quite readily. And indeed that can occur in this case we can get this methyl group with its, the pair of electrons in the sigma bond can shift across over there, form a new bond methyl there, and transfer the charge from the primary center to this center, which is a tertiary center. In other words, we rearrange the primary carbocation to a tertiary carbocation, a much more stable situation. Then the water comes in, because at the end of the day we're going to have to produce an alcohol from this. Water comes in to produce this protonated alcohol. It loses a proton and we get the product the rearranged alcohol. And this is a phenomenon, quite common phenomenon, in SM1 mechanisms. We get rearrangement of carbocations. And you can see, if you look at this neopentyl situation, why neopentyl compounds are very, very difficult to make by substitution processes. Because under SM1 conditions, they rearrange to something else. And we've already seen under SM2 conditions, they don't undergo the reaction at any reasonable rate. Very difficult to displace an halide under SN2 conditions. So you have to make neopentyl compounds by methods other than substitution in general. And then finally, when we look at the factors involved in the um, 
in the substitution S1, S2. I just want to look at the scope of the SN2. And this is on the handout you have before you. And you can see that there are a wide range of nucleophiles. And so the SN2 mechanism is very important synthetically because we can take an alcohol halide and react it with a wide range of nucleophiles and end up with a wide range of products. Indeed, that's why alcohol halides are so very important as synthetic intermediates. They can be used to ma make a lot of other organic compounds. Finally, in this section on nucleophilic substitution, we have to deal with some special cases involving halides which have double bonds in them. And in particular, I want to pick out two types. One in which the halogen is directly attached to the double bond. This double bond may be an isolated double bond like that, in which case the halide is called a vanillic halide. Or it can also be attached to an aromatic ring, which is, if you like, a sort of double bond. Then it's called a phenyl halide. So that's one type, where the halogen is directly attached to the carbon of the double bond. The second type is where the halogen is not directly attached to the double bond, but is one carbon atom removed. With a simple double bond, we have this situation. It's called the allylic halide. We've seen allylic CH2s already. In, if we have, again, the double bond replaced by a sort of pseudo-double bond in a benzene ring and a CH2 between the halide and the benzene ring, this is called a benzylic halide. Now, what I'm going to do is discuss the vanillic and allylic, but what I say is applicable to, to the phenyl and the benzylic. And what we find is that the vanillic substrates are almost inert to either SM1 or SN2 almost inert. In fact, you can say they are essentially inert. Whereas the allylic and benzylic substrates, halides, are very reactive. And we now have to explain the difference between these two types of unsaturated halide. Let's take the allylic case first of all. And look at the SM1 mechanism. We form a carbocation, but now our carbocation has an empty p orbital adjacent to a pi orbital. The pi orbital is filled with two electrons. And we can envisage there, therefore, that, that we can get overlap between that empty p orbital of the carbocation and the adjacent pi orbital. We're essentially delocalizing the electrons of the double bond onto the carbon of the carbocation. Any delocalization, as you know, from benzene results in stabilization and therefore the carbocation is stabilized. Therefore it's more likely to be form, formed, and therefore the allylic halide will react faster under SN1 conditions. Now let's look at SN2. We're not dealing now with a, a carbocation intermediate, we're dealing with a transition state. But in that transition state, we're generating a sort of pseudo p orbital on that carbon when the nucleophile and the X are only partially bound to it. Again, we can get overlap, Again, we get partial delocalization. Again, we can stabilize the transition state, which means we stabilize the reaction, or we increase the rate of reaction. Incidentally, we ought really to talk, when it's talking about stability of carbocations, about the stability of transition states leading to those carbocations, because it is transition states, really, which dictate the rate of reactions. They are the higher energy points over which we have to go. But in carbocation case, very often the transition states resemble the carbocations, so we can discuss the carbocations and say, well, what we say about the carbocations is probably true about the transition state as well. 
So again, with SN2, we see that we get a, an enhanced rate of reaction because of this overlap of orbitals. Now, with a lilac substrate, we also get a, sometimes an odd product at the end of the day because the nucleophile doesn't have just to displace at the carbon bearing the halogen. It can, be it can come in and displace through the double bond. And if the lilac substrate is unsymmetrical, as in this case, the attack through the double bond gives it a rearranged product. This is called SN2 dashed or SN1 dashed, depending on the mechanism, to distinguish from the SN1 and SN2 where the nucleophile attacks directly on the carbon bearing the halogen. Now let's look at the vanillic and the phenyl halides. These are inert because the carbon halogen bond is much stronger. And there are two reasons why it's much stronger. The first is that the carbon bearing the halogen is sp2 hybridized. Now, I'll deal with that when we come to deal with alkenes. But the important thing is it has more s character in it. And that means the electrons of that carbon halogen bond are held closer to the nucleus. It is therefore more difficult to break the halogen off and take those electrons away from that carbon because they are held more tightly. So that's the first reason why the carbon X bond is stronger. The second is the halogen has a pair of electrons on it. And these, again, can overlap with an adjacent pi system. But we're not going to overlap with the pi orbital, because that's filled. And I'll leave you to work out um, why that is not an energetically favorable process, mixing a filled orbital with another filled orbital. What we have to do is you have to overlap it with an orbital we haven't come across yet, but we will deal with in alkenes called the pi star orbital, which is an empty orbital on that carbon. We're now overlapping a filled lone pair orbital on halogen with an empty orbital on the carbon. We're generating a sort of partial double bond character, if you like, between the carbon and the X. Again, that will strengthen the bond. So on two counts, we've strengthened that carbon X bond. And therefore, it is much more difficult to break. And indeed, as I said, the vanillic halides and the phenyl halides are almost impossible to react under substitution conditions. In this demonstration, what we're looking at is the substitution, SN2 substitution, of three alkyl halides. And we're comparing the rates of the three. In the middle here, we have bromobenzene, which, as I said, should be very unreactive, shouldn't react at all. Over here, we have allyl bromide, which should be the most reactive of the three. And here we have our standard ethyl bromide, which is the moderately reacting one. They're all dissolved in acetone, and we're going to react them with sodium iodide in acetone and displace the bromide. Now, that solvent, again, is an important choice because sodium, sodium iodide rather, is soluble in acetone, whereas sodium bromide isn't. So we can follow the rates of reaction by the rates of appearance of the solids, sodium bromide, during the process. Let's look at the middle one first of all, the bromobenzene. This should be unreactive, so nothing should happen. In fact, we'll keep it there, and throughout the whole sequence you'll see nothing will happen to it. Make sure I've got the right one. Yes. We'll leave that like that. And you see there's no precipitate, completely colourless, and it should stay like that throughout. Now, in order to get a comparison with the other two, I'm going to add the sodium iodide if I can to them at about the same time, so you can compare the rates 
of reaction between them. Let's see if we can do this without spilling it. So we may have to add that one first, that one second. And you see that the one we decide is most reactive, the allyl bromide, has reacted immediately to produce sodium bromide. That's this white precipitate at the bottom. The ethyl one is reacting very much slower. But if we leave it for a while to stand, we should start to see that going slightly cloudy and then more so with time. And you can see it now, if we use our bromobenzene, our unreactive one, as a comparison, this is indeed cloudy. And as we proceed, in about 20 minutes, that one will probably be about as cloudy as that one. And that's a nice demonstration of the different reactivity of the allyl versus the ethyl versus the unreactive bromo, bromobenzene, rather. Right.